when man encounters God, he's terrorized by the majesty and the holiness and the purity of God. But the Lord always responds to his own with gracious comfort. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part three of a four-part series titled, A Vision of the Exalted Christ. So far, we've seen two primary identifiers concerning the incredible vision of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20 the setting of the vision, and the focus of the vision. Well, today, Tom will explore in greater depth the results of this amazing and incredible vision. The question remains, what will your response be to this remarkable vision? Keep that in mind as we join Tom right now, here on The Word Unleashed. We've seen the setting of the vision. We've seen the focus of that vision. Jesus Christ glorified, serving His church, And in verses 17 to 20, we see the results of that vision. The results begin with John's response, and and we can call it, instead of John's response, man's typical response, because that's what it is. Notice verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. In response to the vision that he had of the glorified risen Christ, John falls at his feet. This is almost identical to what happened to John 65 years earlier at the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, verse 6, when the disciples heard this, when they heard the voice of God speak, when they saw the transfiguration, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. So this is deja vu for John. He had seen Jesus in his glory at the transfiguration, and now he sees him in his resurrected glory on the Isle of Patmos. This is a typical, common response for man. Throughout Scripture, whenever a human being encounters God, he or she is overwhelmed. This, by the way, shows you that many of those visions that people have of God aren't the real thing. Because, you know, I I read one time about a man who said, you know, that Jesus showed up while he was shaving. And he and Jesus just carried on a casual chat while he was shaving. That's never what happens in the Scripture when people encounter a true vision of God. They find themselves just like John, on their face, on the ground, terrified. You see it with Joshua in Joshua 5.14. You see it with Isaiah in Isaiah 6.5. You see it with Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1.28 and 3.23. You see it with Daniel in chapter 10. You remember when the man clothed in linen, the pre-incarnate appearance of our, Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ shows up. Daniel is on his face. You see it in the New Testament in Matthew 17.6 of the transfiguration. You see it in Acts 26.14 as Paul describes his Damascus Road experience. When he saw the Lord he soon found himself on his face. Now this common response to God can be born of awe. It can be born of gratitude. Some people in gratitude for God's goodness find themselves collapsed on the ground. Sometimes it's terror and sometimes it's worship. In fact, in Revelation, 
people often fall down in worship. We'll see that as we work our way through this book. But John's response here wasn't worship. How do I know that? Because he adds, as a dead man. It's clear he's not worshiping. He's completely overwhelmed as if he's in a coma or as if he were truly dead. Since the Lord immediately tells him to stop being afraid, we don't have to guess as to why he's lying there on the ground like a dead man. He is terrified. His coma-like state was created by sheer terror. Now, what's the source of John's fear? After all, he knows the Lord. This is the disciple who laid on Jesus' chest at meals, who, who knew him, who was the beloved disciple, who walked with Christ through the dusty streets of Israel, who had meals with him constantly, who, who bivouacked out, you know, on the desert sand. What, what is going on here? Well, this, this response naturally comes from a finite creature being in the presence of an infinite God, especially when the infinite God's glory is completely unsheltered and unveiled. It comes from being a weak, frail human being witnessing the power, majesty, and glory of God. I believe when we see our God, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming or when He takes us to Him, we will find ourselves in exactly the same position. This also comes from realizing you're a sinful person in the presence of a perfectly pure and holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 Woe is me when he saw the glorified Christ there in Isaiah 6. For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Daniel chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I heard the sound of his words and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Simon Peter saw that Jesus had miraculously filled the nets with fish and understood who he was, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Common response to a personal encounter with God is paralyzing fear. Just as people always respond in the same way to God, here's the good news, God always graciously responds to that fear with his people in the same way. And that is, we want to see the Lord's gracious comfort. The Lord's gracious comfort. You can trace both of these through the Scripture. When, when man encounters God, he's terrorized by the majesty and the holiness and the purity of God. But the Lord always responds to his own with gracious comfort. It begins with his reassuring touch, verse 17, he placed his right hand on me. Don't you love that? We're talking about Christ in his glory. There he is on the island of Patmos with his, with his apostle, the one he loved, and what does he do when he sees him paralyzed on the ground because of the greatness of who he has seen? He touches him with his right hand. This is a personal touch of comfort and assurance. I find that to be so encouraging. As the risen Lord, Jesus still tenderly cares for his own in the same way that he did during his earthly ministry. He's the same. Just as John had experienced the same terror at seeing the glory of Christ in the transfiguration, he experienced 
the same comfort from Christ. You remember back in Matthew chapter 17, verse 7, after, after they were terrorized by the vision of the transfiguration, Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. Get up and do not be afraid. This is exactly what happened in Isaiah 6 too, you remember. Isaiah overwhelmed by his sin, overwhelmed by the vision of Christ on his throne. And that was Christ, by the way, according to John chapter 12. He saw Christ. And he was terrified. And what happened? He ended up being purified and commissioned. Welcomed and commissioned. Cleansed, welcomed, commissioned. There's also a lesson here in this verse, verse 17, about Christ's care, not only for his churches. You know, we tend to think about the church, and Christ does as well, as we'll see. But here, we see his care for individuals within the church. As Leon Morris writes, at one and the same time, Christ has the whole church in his hand, the seven stars and walking among the lampstands, and he takes actions for the needs of the individual John. Both truths are important. So we see his reassuring touch. This is our Lord. Secondly, we see his reassuring command. Verse 17, he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Literally, stop being fearful. Every time believers encounter the glory of God, they're overwhelmed with fear. And every time God's immediate response to his own is to assure them of his love, of his forgiveness, and of his care. Both are true. John had heard this comforting command from Jesus, don't be afraid, on a number of occasions during his earthly ministry. You remember in Matthew 14, verse 27, when, when Jesus approached the disciples walking on the water, now there's something to make you fearful, and he says to them, don't be afraid, it's, it's me, don't be afraid. In Matthew 17, 7, as I mentioned, when they witnessed the transfiguration, he, he touches them and he says, don't be afraid. His reassuring command. Then we see his reassuring character. And this is really the heart of what he says and what he does here. Christ comforts John, certainly with a touch, certainly with a command not to fear, but then he tells him why he shouldn't fear, why he shouldn't be afraid by reminding John of who he is. John doesn't need to fear because of who Jesus Christ is. Can I just say to you, if you're new in Christ, those of you who are older in Christ, you know this already, but for those of you who are newer in Christ, one of the greatest sources of comfort you will ever find is not in your circumstances, not in hopes that your circumstances will change, but in the unchanging character of our Lord. And that's what he says here. So Jesus says, John, you don't need to be afraid. And, and then he tells him why, because of who he is. First of all, he is the one true living God. He is the one true and living God. Verse 17, he says to him, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This title begins, by the way, I, with the words I am, in Greek, ego eimi, familiar words for those who know John's gospel, used six times to introduce what are called the I am sayings of John's gospel, I am the bread of life, I am, so forth. 
Of course, the title I Am has a rich Old Testament background. It's the personal name of God. It's, it's Yahweh. This same expression, by the way, I am the first and the last, occurs again in chapter 2, verse 8. We'll look at it soon. And then it occurs again at the end of the book in chapter 23, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This title, the first and the last, is used often of God in the Old Testament. And it compares the true God against the idols of the nations. What God says in the book of Isaiah is this. Look, the gods that the people around you worship, the gods, Israel, that you are tempted to worship, they are here today and gone tomorrow. But he is eternal. Notice he says, Jesus says he is the first. That is, he was God before they ever existed. He was there at the beginning. And he is the last He will be there when their shattered remains lie in the garbage dump of history. He's the first and he's the last. Listen to how it's described in Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. That's the point. I was there before they ever ever came into existence in the minds of men. I was... I will be there at the end when they are a distant memory because they don't even exist. There is no God besides me. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called, I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Here's comfort for you. As you sit here tonight, we are surrounded by people who are worshipers. You realize that of the seven billion plus people on this planet, one in six, or one in, uh, excuse me, let me say this differently, six in seven of them are worshipers. All of them are ultimately worshipers. They're worshipers of themselves, but six in seven claim to be worshipers of someone or something, and they're idols for the most part. They are not the true God But you and I, by God's grace, have come to know the one true and living God, the one who's the first and the last. There's comfort in that. Verse 18 goes on to say, and the living one. Jesus says, I am the only true God, and I am the living one. This is another common name for God in Scripture in which he contrasts himself with the idols of the nations that have no life. They're dead idols. They can't, you remember the mockery in Isaiah. They can't see, they can't speak, they can't hear your prayers, they can't do anything. You have to prop them up when they fall. You have to carry them to the next place. You made them out of a piece of wood or a piece of metal. They can do nothing. But God says, I am the living one. Unlike those idols. That contrast is made throughout both the Old and the New Testament. It speaks of him as being not only eternal, I think eternal is in this idea of being the living one, but I think it's more than that. I think Jesus is saying that like the Father, he possesses life in himself. I am the living one. I'm the one who simply has life. I possess life in myself. John 1.4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way 
and the truth, and listen to this, I am the life. He possesses life in and of himself. These titles are here attributed to Christ, or I should say Christ attributes them to himself, just as they have been attributed to God, which is a powerful argument for the deity of Jesus Christ. So, he is the one true and living God. Another part of his reassuring character is that he personally experienced death once to redeem us. Verse 18, and I was dead. Literally, the the Greek text says, I became dead. It speaks of a a one-time event. The living one, the one who had life in himself, the eternal God, became man. And then 33 years later, he became dead. That's the point. He says, I became man, and I became dead. The expression points, as I said, to a single occurrence in history. It points to his death on the cross. Why did Jesus die? We'll go back to verse 5. Jesus Christ loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's shorthand for his violent death. That's why he died. And so we're reminded in this statement, he says, I became dead. Oh, and the reason I died was to redeem you, to redeem my people. He personally experienced death once to redeem us. There's a great comfort. There's a great reassurance. The third part of his reassuring character is he personally conquered death forever. Verse 18 goes on to say, I was dead, I became dead, and behold, that word calls attention to something that's going to be amazing, that's going to be wonderful, that's going to be astounding. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Literally, the Greek text says, I am alive into the ages of the ages. Don't think of an age. Think of ages of ages. And I am still alive. Jesus assured John that although as a human being he had died once, it would never happen again. The focus here is on his continuous state of existence. It's not primarily on the resurrection, but Christ's indestructible life. Romans 6, 9 says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He's never going to die again. That's what he's saying. I am alive forevermore. I'm alive into the ages of the ages. You never have to worry about losing me. I'm here. And Hebrews 7, 16, I love this, says of our great high priest, he has the power of an indestructible life. There's a comfort. The Lord we worship is indestructible. His life will never, ever come to an end, never be destroyed. Why is that a comfort? Well, think about who he's talking to here. Our Lord is saying these words to a 95-year-old man who is soon to die. He's going to write in chapters 2 and 3 to churches who are facing imminent persecution, including even death. Can you imagine the encouragement of this statement about our Lord uh, to them? I am alive 
into the ages of the ages. And you're mine. Same is true for us. If our Lord delays his return, then all of us in this room will die. It's not like a cheerful discussion you want to have over dinner, probably. But it's true. The mortality rate is 100%. But because of Christ, because he has conquered death forever, and he is our Lord, we don't have to fear death. He is alive forevermore. He personally conquered death. And therefore, we don't have to fear it. Hebrews chapter 2. In fact, look at Hebrews 2. I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Like, since we are flesh and blood, Jesus became flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, the people on this planet live in fear of death. Why do you think that even while some people are obviously taking right and reasonable precautions to, to preserve their life, we're commanded to take reasonable care for ourselves. There are people in our world who will not leave their homes out of dread and fear of what? Of death. Jesus said, I came to end that fear. I have the power of an indestructible life. I love the way even David puts it in Psalm 23. I was sharing this with a man in our church who is facing death in the very near future. On Thursday, Psalm 23, verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, meaning as a shepherd leads me and leads me through dark, deep valleys to get me to the next pasture, in the same way there are dark valleys in this life, and the darkest of those is death. And as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. You remember Jesus' words to Martha in John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. There's the resurrection. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. There's the fact that you never go out of existence. The moment your body dies, you pass into the Lord's presence. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. There's our hope. He personally conquered death forever. He says, I became dead. I became man. I became dead. But I am alive into the ages of the ages. Another part of his reassuring character is he controls death in the grave. Verse 18 goes on to say, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now you understand the illustration of keys, right? If you have the keys to your home, what does that imply? It's yours. You have authority over it. You have ownership of it. You control it. You control everything within that home that those keys lock. The same thing is true with Christ. He's saying, I have the keys I have complete control over, notice what he says, over death. And I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but I just got to thinking this week about Jesus' control over death. And let me just, let me just encourage you. 
Because I think, again, we can be prone, like unbelievers, to live in some fear of death. Everybody fears the process of death. I mean, Calvin said that. We just don't fear the result. We don't have to fear the result. Why? Because our Lord is master of it. He has the keys of death. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, A Vision of the Exalted Christ. Tom will have part four for you on our next program, and we hope you join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.